Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I was like about 12 years old when the Dick Van Dyke show came on, and here was this good-looking guy married to this very pretty Mary Tyler Moore. They had a kid, Richie, so they had a family, had a very nice house in New Rochelle, and he spent his days at work lying on a couch, joking around with Buddy and Sally. So I said to my parents, I want to do that. <laughs> that's that, that seems like a good way to spend your day, okay? And your life. That's multiple Emmy Award-winning writer Alan Zweibel. Alan has made some of the funniest people you ever heard even funnier. He contributed to the creation of comedy classics like Saturday Night Live and Curb Your Enthusiasm. I thought if anyone could throw some light on that special form of communications that humans have of being funny, it would be Alan. And in any case, the conversation would be fun. And it was. Alan, this is so wonderful. I'm so glad to be talking to you. Isn't this great? I'm just so, so glad to be talking with you. Same here. You've been well, Arlene. Everybody's good. We're all doing well. And I'm enjoying times like this where I get to talk with fascinating people. And I want to talk about your book, this wonderful book called Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. And you're funny, so you helped yourself. Well, you know, something, it's, I think it's symbiotic, you know. I didn't know what to do with this um, this sense of humor of mine. And I had a choice a long time ago. Um, gee, do I want to be funny by myself? Or uh, do I, I just love writing so much. I love trying to figure out what other people's voices are, what they sound like, what would be funny for them to say. So that's the path that I chose a long, long time ago, starting with writing jokes for $7 a joke up in the Catskill Mountains. $7 a joke. That was the going rate, yeah. (laughs) Now, did you ever have a situation where they didn't give you the $7, but they used the joke anyway? (laughs) Oh, my God. Some of them had road companies. (laughs) (laughs) The jokes had road (laughs) companies. The jokes had road companies. I go, wait a second. I go to the Friars Club. And I'd hear a, a guy, there was a comedian named Mickey Freeman, and he delivered a joke. And I remember saying to my wife, Robin, Freddie Roman rejected that joke, but I never gave it to this guy. How did he get it? So it was- <laughs> 
that's great. Yeah, it was, a, it was a crazy world up there where a lot of people did everybody else's acts because they figured they, you know, who, who's going to find out? You know what I mean? I'm not on television unless they're at the homo act that night. No one's going to know. You know, that what's so interesting about your stories about the Borscht Belt up in the comedy up in the mountains and your book was really interesting to me because it was an example of how times change and comedy changes. You were writing Borscht Belt jokes, and then when you went to Saturday Night Live, it was a whole other universe. It, it certainly was. You know what it was, Alan, that growing up in the 50s and the 60s, my parents, uh, you know, they uh, their parents came here. They were immigrants. My parents moved to the suburbs when I was like seven, and it was a brand new world. You know, it was crabgrass, it was uh, carpools and air conditioners. And for the weekends, you know, they had something called leisure time. And what they did with it- They, is had, they, suits went up, to, they had suits to go with it. Oh, they had leisure suits to go with it, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> so they had leisure, leisure time, and then what would they do? They'd go to the board Well, they belt. would go to the Catskills. They would take us up there, me, my sisters, my brother- for holiday weekends, and I'd see these comedians up there. And it was during Eisenhower. It was during the uh, Kennedy's administration. And it was very apolitical. It was mm. just about life. It was just about, it was fat jokes. It was wife jokes. It was, um, <laughs> I remember, you know, you know, uh, a car mechanic saying to somebody, you know, look, I couldn't fix your brakes, so I made your horn louder. <laughs> you, you know, it was those kind of jokes. When did you start trying to write jokes? How old were you? Oh, it was probably in college. I went to the University of Buffalo. I froze my butt off for four years. So I stayed in my room <laughs> and I would watch Johnny Carson and I'd watch Dick Cavett had a show, you know, Carol Burnett yeah. and... I would start writing jokes, and especially for the guys who had the talk shows, I would send them in. There was no email at the time, so I would mail it, let's say, about the big snowstorm on Monday. And on Thursday, I'd watch the show, and my jokes were close enough to what the professional writers were doing. By no means am I saying they took my jokes. No, but you were learning by the similarity that you were getting close, you were homing in on it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Wow, these guys are professionals. Look how close I am to what they're doing. Maybe I do have something to offer. That was the feedback. Can you remember what was going through your head as you said, oh, this is how you do a joke? How did you learn to do a joke? Because so many of us try to make jokes about the weather or the food, and it comes out flat. <laughs> <laughs> well... There's different ways. Those Catskill guys didn't have distinct personalities, okay? So you would write a joke that in and of itself was funny, hopefully. Yeah. So if I wrote a joke about um, a sperm bank saying that they have a new thing. Wait, now, wait, 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 I was just taking a sip of tea when you said that. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, I'm choking. I'm choking. They... <laughs> I'm choking. I'm choking on the premise. You know something? That's... What would make you write a joke about a sperm bank? Yeah, yeah. As you're drinking from a mug, oh, God, you talk about timing. Okay. <laughs> 
I almost did a spit take. Yeah, well, you know, that Sid Melton, remember him? He was the king of spit takes. The, um, okay, so you're I, writing a joke about well, listen, about a sperm, sperm bank. bank, okay? Yeah. And I'd say, you know, they have a new thing now called sperm banks, which is just like an ordinary bank, except here, after you make a deposit, you lose interest, okay? So... <laughs> There, <laughs> it was. A this self- was one of your first jokes. I, that was the first one I got seven dollars for. That one wow. I got seven dollars. I'll and give you eight fifty on the spot. You know something sold. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> even though it's used, it's in good condition. It's used, but you, it's it's you know something that was one of the jokes that I heard other people doing, and I'm going, wait a second, I didn't sell that to you, but it was flattering, you know, and then. I started getting phone calls. I was living back with my parents after college. All my friends were off to med school and law school. And I went back to my old bedroom on Long Island. And I, the phone would ring and it would be a guy like Freddie Roman, very nice man, very terrific commercial comedian. And he'd say to me, he says, hey, hey I hear you write great sperm bank jokes. So <laughs> God, how did I become this guy? Okay, I'm 21. I'm the sperm bank guy. Okay, all right, fine. Uh, it was starting to freeze freeze sperm. So I said, you know, this could be a, a, a problem down uh, in the future because it's hard enough telling a kid he's been adopted. How do you tell him he's been defrosted? Okay, so now I'm up to $14, okay? But those jokes... You could do that with any personality. It wasn't until I wrote jokes for, let's say, Rodney Dangerfield, who yeah. had that distinct persona, I don't get no respect. So I suddenly learned to write for characters. You know? ah, so, yeah. so there's a difference. One is a self-contained thing. One comes out of personality. You know, look at all the great movies and the great TV shows you did where, you know, Hawkeye, you know, you would get laughs. Um just out of something that wasn't funny unless delivered by that person in that situation. Right, and of course, of course the, the the hallmark of that is uh, was Jack Benny. Sure. Who, who if a pause at the right point, you knew what his character was thinking. Well, I, Alan, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. To my knowledge, and I don't know if this is urban legend or not, with Jack Benny, the longest laugh in the history of radio yeah. was when the guy said, your money or your life, and the longer he didn't answer, <laughs> okay, because you knew <laughs> that you he knew. was debating it because <laughs> he was the cheap guy, the longer and louder that laugh got, you know? I think and it was the it, longer. And then, it, and then when it reached its peak, he gave the punchline, which got another huge laugh. What I'm thinking. The guy I'm said, thinking, well, yeah. and he goes, I'm thinking, okay, and shut up again. <laughs> so that kind of stuff is so precious, you know? Mm, that's right. And you, when you mentioned uh, Rodney Dangerfield, you reminded me of how you all seemed to be a community, the comics and writers in those days. I don't know yes. if it's still true, but you thought together, you worked together. The idea of being at a table and if something unusual happens, everybody takes out their notebook and writes down the basis of a joke. Oh, Absolutely. You know, as a comic, the, the, the 10 minutes that I was a comic, I um, we would go uh, to a, a coffee shop, let's say, you know, at two in the morning, and everybody would be sitting there and talking. And if something happened, all of a sudden, everybody took out their little pads, they wrote something down and put their pads back in. And um, to this very day, and then you get a guy like Larry David, 
who is on a different plane than the rest of the world, we'd all sit there and out of nowhere, nothing happened. He'd take out his pad, he'd scribble something, and we're all going, what did we miss? What happened? (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of sharing the life of comedy as a group and trying ideas out on each other and that kind of thing. But the epitome of that was the story you told in the book where you you and your wife come home from your honeymoon and there's a phone call, <laughs> a phone call. Tell, 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 I want to hear well, that from you. what happened was, yeah, you know, look, my wife Robin worked at Saturday Night Live, so she got sort of a bird's eye view what it would be like living with a writer, okay? <clears throat> she, um, what she would do is, you know, she'd go home and she'd go to sleep and she'd brush her teeth and she'd have breakfast and come in the next day. And we're all still there from the day before, smelling oh, like we've been there for 48 hours, working all night, trying to get the scripts ready. She knew that part. But what she couldn't forecast was we got married, we went on a honeymoon and we came back. And it was two in the morning, we're dead to the world, we just throw our suitcases down, don't even unpack, plop into bed, and literally 10 minutes later, it's about 10 after, quarter after two, the phone rings, and I go, hello, he goes, Alan, it's Rodney. (laughs) It's Rodney Dangerfield calling at a quarter after two in the morning, and I said, "Uh, hey man, uh, you okay? Alan, you know, when we were growing up, we were real poor, (laughs) okay? How, how poor were you, Rodney? Well, we were so poor that, you know, come Christmas, we couldn't afford tinsel for the tree. We had we waited for my grandfather to sneeze. <laughs> so I'm lying in bed, laughing my butt off. A, I thought it was funny. And B, my poor wife. This is the life <laughs> that she's going to live, witness, be a part of. And he goes, uh, what do you think, funny? I went, yeah, it's really funny. He goes, yeah, that's what I thought. And he hung up, but I didn't hear from him for a year. So I, <laughs> so I go, wow. So, and before the days of a call, your caller ID, yeah. you know, when I was doing its Gary Shanling show, Shanling had a habit of calling at six in the morning on Sunday. Now, if you're a Jew, the <laughs> phone rings at six o'clock on a Sunday morning. It's one of two things in our house. Either someone was dead or Gary Shandling was calling. <laughs> and my wife and I would debate which was worse news. <laughs> the, the phone was on her side of the bed. And if it rang, she just took it and handed it over. She didn't even talk into it. She knew that it was something that I should handle. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure Arlene has witnessed things, you know, Larry, the Larry Gelbarts, the Mel Brooks's, the everybody that's been in your life, your circle. It's a little bit left to center and it's it's fun. It's Henny. actually fun. One time Henny Youngman called to see if he could play my Italian grandfather in a movie I was making. <laughs> And Arlene didn't believe it was Henny Youngman. She said, oh, sure, come on. He said, no, it's... <laughs> yeah, Henny Youngman, an Italian grandfather. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, I, you know, I think... Um, uh, I, yeah, I put this in the book. Um, when I was first taken to the Friars Club, 
what this is when I was, this is pre-Saturday Night Live and I'm writing, there's a bar there when you walk in, in at the New York Club and I it was there that I would sell jokes for $7 a joke or I would be taken there by a, a, a comic named Morty Gunty who would introduce me around, okay? Mm. And there was an old comic, uh, Gene Balos, remember yeah, him? Yeah, And I remember I was being introduced to Gene Balos and Morty Gunty introduces me to Balos, who's an old man, sad sack face with, you know, droopy sort of beagle eyes. And he goes, yeah, I hear you're funny. You know who else is funny? My dentist. <laughs> and he opens up his mouth, Alan, and outpour about 30 chiclets as if they're his teeth. <laughs> To this day, I don't know if he was walking around with chiclets all day in his waiting mouth and was just waiting for somebody, or he saw me coming and turned around and put a, you know, a bunch of chiclets in there. But I love these guys. You know, I go, wow, wow. Anything to get a laugh. And it was also Henny, you mentioned Henny Youngman. I remember the first week that I joined the Friars Club, I had left Saturday Night Live at this point. I'm about 30 years old. Yeah, I left when I was 30. So it's about a year later. I no longer had a uh, an office at NBC. We started having our family, Robin and I, and I needed a place to go work. And so I joined the Friars Club in New York. They had a room upstairs that had a big screen TV and, you know, newspapers and a couch. Go, okay, I'll work that. So the first week that I'm going there, uh, the Friars Club in New York is on 55th between Park and Madison. This particular time of day, maybe it was a Saturday, I can't remember, there was nobody on the street. That's an important part of this story. I make the turn off of Madison onto 55th Street to go to the club. In front of me, about 100 feet ahead of me, a door opens from some store, out steps Henny Youngman who now thinks he's alone because I'm all the way back there. There's nobody on the street. He doesn't see me. He crosses the street to go up to the Friars Club. As he gets on that side of the street, a pigeon flutters down, lands near Henny's foot. Henny looks at it and goes, any mail for me? (laughs) Alan, he, he... to a bird. He didn't know I was there. There was nobody else. It was a knee-jerk reaction. Something happened. He, he felt a joke coming on and spoke to the bird. I don't know who does that these days. I just love those guys. I, I, lo- I love that. <laughs> We're taking a short break from my conversation with Alan's wife, Bell. And when we come back, Alan talks about his time as a writer on Saturday Night Live during its early years and why the success of a joke often depends on who tells it. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, 
You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Alan Zweibel. You've talked about how different it was to go from the Borge Belt to Saturday Night Live. How, what was it like going from joke-making and, and writing sketches, which are really short forms, to writing plays? It, it was a learning experience along the way. SNL, when I got there from day one, I had never heard of Second City. Mm. So I looked around a room where I saw Gilda Radner and John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Lorraine Newman improving and creating characters and situations where they were making eye contact with each other. My background was joke writing for comedians who spoke outward to an audience. There was yeah. no frame for them to stay in. And there was an energy there and there was a presence of mind to feed off what the other person said and, and create something. Uh, I was aided and abetted 
Well, my first thing was I gravitated towards Weekend Update, which was about the news, and it was joke writing, okay? Uh But I was aided and abetted by my friendship with Gilda Radna. We took a liking to each other, and I learned a lot from her and through her because we made each other laugh, and I put words in her mouth. I created characters with and for her. I did the same with Belushi and the others. Gilda was probably the one I wrote with most. And that was a crash course in creating characters, writing for those characters, and not being, quote unquote, jokey yeah. because a character was saying it. That's right. A, lo- a, lot of, a lot of people don't get the connection, the difference. It it sticks. If a character is saying something that's funny, but a joke that that character wouldn't make as a that's joke, right. it's, it it loses its ability to be funny because it it sticks out like a thumb. We don't go through life saying jokes, you know, especially not well well crafted jokes. You yeah, know, who who talks like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody walks around like that. You're absolutely right. I'm wondering about what makes things funny to us. Why do we laugh? There have been philosophers, Henri uh, Bergson, Sigmund Freud. They all had opinions and wrote books about why we think things are funny, none of which I ever found believable. <laughs> <laughs> they were too academic, and the, the least funny thing you can do is write a treatise on what's funny. I know. <laughs> I well, agree with you. Freud does include some funny gags. Yes. He's got one joke that Arlene and I quote to each other all the time. Oh, I see you have egg in your beard. I know what you had for breakfast. He said, no, dinner last night. <laughs> you know, I that one I wasn't familiar with, but I'm laughing. You know, that's from, from Freud. From yeah. Freud, Freud. Yeah, but if you said it with a funny hat on, you really would Oh, love yeah, it. well, yeah, with a feather and a thing. With, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a pork pie hat. Freud with a pork, pork pie, pie hat. Pork pie hat, and if he had, you know, shorts and long socks. You know? Right. But I want to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but the, uh, I was, well, was going to ask you something about that. I think, part, I may be wrong, I don't maybe misremember, but I get the impression that uh, Freud was saying something about something at the heart of humor, which is masked hostility. And certainly roast jokes are. Are are there a lot of, is there a whole, uh, are there several categories of jokes you think that mask this hostility? I would think you're right, Alan. Boy, that's a a masked hostility. I think that, uh, I I, I think it's been in all of our experiences that a a lot of people who do what we do, uh, for whatever reasons, are angry. Um, Hmm. They, uh, there's a certain amount of bitterness, whether it's a childhood thing or, or, or whatever the psychological reasons are. I, I think that humor in those particular cases is an acceptable expression of that. Okay, mm-hmm. so what what maybe uh, motivates it comes from a, a not so pleasant place. But for them, there's something cathartic, cathartic about it. And you look at my friend Larry David. You look at Curb Your Enthusiasm. He, um, it's naughty. You know, he, he does a lot of things that people think, but don't dare say, but there's something about Larry's does it, you know, and uh, he pulls it off. You know, I think that in general, 
you know, when you're punching up, mm. you can get away with a lot. Parody, satire, you know, uh, making fun of uh, whoever the president is, uh, whoever the, the czar was mm-hmm. back then. You know, the Shalom Aleichem stories and all that. They made pogrom jokes. They made czar jokes and their lies were horrible. But I think that there was a certain way of, uh, there was a coping mechanism to the humor also. You know, there, there was a certain amount of gallows humor, but how else are we going to live unless we laugh a little bit? Otherwise, this is terrible. Right, yeah, there was certainly that. And then there's also the tradition of talking to power with dissent through humor. The, the whole role of the, the fool in court, the court jester. Yeah. was It was acceptable to say things that were, anti-royalty as long as it was funny enough, I think. And if it wasn't I, funny I think enough, you're right. You either killed or you got killed. <laughs> it was one some somebody or something killed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> killed definitely worked its way into the result. You're absolutely right. You know, I, I think that it's a little unfortunate that these days we're so hypersensitive about what we say to each other. Um, that the humor is being taken out of a lot of the things uh, that ordinarily should be good-natured. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that it's. Yeah. Um, I, I remember growing up, everybody made fun of each other, then you went for lunch together. Right, right. You were talking before about writing with other people. Are there different kinds of collaboration you go through depending on the person you're working with? or depending on the kind of comedy you're doing? By all means. Um, uh, That's a wonderful question. I've been very fortunate to have a lot of collaborators. Um, uh, There was a man named Herb Sargent up at Saturday Night Live. I knew Herb. Herb said one of the funniest things that I ever heard. I'm sitting in a restaurant, and he's on the other side of the restaurant, and I I know he's there because we waved to each other when we came in. But he gets up, and it turns out, for some reason, he's on crutches. And as he passes our table, he says, don't order the fish. (laughs) That was Herb. You know, he he was the quietest man in the world. And I remember, I think it was uh, uh, Larry Gelbart said about him, he said, if Herb Sargent could talk, can you imagine the stories he could tell? (laughs) You know, so... Uh, so, but there was Herb and there was Gilda and um, then Billy Crystal and Gary Shandling and Martin Short. I've been very, very, Dave Barry as of late. And if you, my experience has been, it's almost twofold. On the one hand, if you're writing with another writer, you appreciate each other and you, you like, the sensibilities are similar enough where you appreciate each other but they're different by about 10, 15%. Mm. So what you do together is something that none of you could have done alone. There's, yeah. Yeah. there's an alchemy there, okay? Yeah. Uh, that's been my experience. But when you're writing with somebody for that person, um, boy, at best, you're vice president because uh-huh. they have to deliver the lines or the speeches yeah, right, that you're saying. Right. And if they don't believe in it... Um, they're not going to do it with any conviction. So what I usually... This story, this story has a score. I like that. 
<laughs> you, ha- you haven't stopped the recording, have you? Trust me, it will be fine. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Your phone rings with the Dick yeah, Van Dyke my, show that's theme my, song. Uh, that's my ring, my ringtone. How did you how did you arrive at that? Did you run down a list of shows that might be on your phone? No, it worked the other way. When I was a little boy, I was like about 12 years old when the Dick Van Dyke show came on. And here was this good-looking guy married to this very pretty Mary Tyler Moore. They had a kid, Richie, so they had a family, had a very nice house in New Rochelle, and he spent his days at work lying on a couch, joking around with Buddy and Sally. So I said to my parents, I want to do that. <laughs> that's, that, that seems like a good way to spend your day, okay, and your life. So what happened was when I ultimately became, you know, did, ended up doing what I'm doing, and I met Carl Reiner and became friends with him, and uh, Rob's my good buddy, uh, that was a seminal show. And I know that a lot of people around my age who went into comedy, either as a writer or a stand-up, and if you speak to Paul Reiser, he'll tell you about the Dick Van Dyke show. A lot of people, Richard Lewis will say, that was what did it for me. Isn't that interesting? So what happened was when these phones were invented and you can pick your own thing, uh, ringtone, I said, do they have the Dick Van Dyke show? So that, that's how that happened. I'm wondering about a basic question in comedy. We were talking before about is it is it, is it masked hostility, and and I think Mel Brooks said, if a rich guy in a top hat falls down a sewer, it's funny. If I fall down a sewer, it's tragedy. <laughs> yes. Similar to that is when something terrible happens. How soon can you start making jokes about it in public? You know, like the, the the iconic joke that outlines that is, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the show? <laughs> exactly. And which got to the point now where people only have to say the straight part to one another. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, then everybody knows what the, what the, the joke is. So how, how are you guided about when it's not too late? Or not, not too early. When, how are you guided by when it's not too early? Look, I think that there will always be locker room kind of situations where somebody will make a joke 10 minutes after it happens. And when I say locker room, I mean just close-knit, don't tell anybody because we know it's bad. Yeah. We know it's naughty, okay? Yeah, yeah. I believe it was you. Was it not your character in Crimes and Misdemeanors who talked about time? Comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah, that that was that was one of my right. Lines. And you also yeah. said if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not right. Those are good descriptions of comedy. I, I, I think that they're classic descriptions. And I remember we we were at the same dinner party one night. Uh, you and uh, Arlene and Robin and myself, and uh, we went down an elevator together, and we waited for a cab or or, or whatever. And I was talking to you about it because crimes and misdemeanor. Um, in terms of Woody's movies, I think that's number one for me. I, 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 I just think that there are so many layers philosophically and um, mm. you know the characters and whatever. So I remember that stayed with me. As far as time is concerned, yeah, you know, I think, boy, I don't think that there's a formula as to you've got to wait X amount of time. And I think that... Um, there's a wonderful, wonderful documentary that if you haven't seen, Alan, I highly recommend. It's called The Last Laugh. And 
what it is is about humor and the Holocaust. Two words you never mm. hear in the same sentence together, okay? Yeah. Mel yeah. Brooks speaks, Carl Reiner, Rob, I, I'm on it, Gilbert Gottfried, Sarah Silverman, Larry David. And it's about how far can you go? And yeah, whereas Mel said, look, in the producers, he says he went with Hitler, but he didn't do Holocaust, all right? He stayed away from mm. it. Mm. At the spine of this documentary is a woman named Renee something, 92, 93-year-old survivor of Auschwitz. Still has the tattooed mm. numbers and all of that. And she explains that you needed a sense of humor to survive the Holocaust. Otherwise, mm. you couldn't get through it because it was so horrific. So did she give examples? Uh, well, she showed, she showed footage, you know, however she got it or the producers got it, of sketches that were put on by the prisoners to make the SS mm. laugh. But what this woman, Renee, says at the end of this documentary, she says, you know, if Hitler were to see me now, the life that I have, I would have the last laugh. Hence, the title of the documentary. Yeah. So I think in answer to your question, I think you wet your finger, you hold it up to the wind, and some things are never funny, and some things are, okay, maybe it's time to do it now. You know, I don't think there's a yeah. clear answer. Well, unfortunately, it's time now for us to say so long for a while. My God! The time went by so fast. I know it. We just started. But we know we always end the show with seven quick Please, questions. Yeah. And when you, were on, when you were on the show last time, we asked you these same seven questions. And so maybe by now you have an well, answer. Maybe we can see if, if I've matured <laughs> at all. <laughs> this is the last time I was on Okay, here's the first question. What do you wish you really understood I wish I understood um, why we're here. What's this all about? This thing, this life of ours. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I, I usually would say something like, have you ever considered that those two numbers added up make five? <laughs> so I try to <laughs> present it in such a way that they don't feel stupid. <laughs> You know, I got to I got to ask you this. You were talking about meeting an old friend in a comedy club, a comedian. Was it David Brenner? Oh yeah. Who said he had discovered the world's funniest number? Alan, to this day I pray that he was kidding, but there was no hint whatsoever of irony. There was no wink. He just told me and Gary Shandling that he figured out the world's the funniest number. I said, you're kidding. He said, yeah. I said, what is it? He said, guess. I said, <laughs> I said David, there's like a lot of numbers. <laughs> I don't have this kind of time. And he looked around. So nobody would, you know, eavesdropping, learned the secret, okay? And when he thought the coast was clear, he leaned to me and Gary Shanling and said, 267. I went, really? He said, shh, <laughs> okay, it was like that. 
<laughs> he said he tested it out on stage. That's the number. And I swear to you, I, I, we left him as if we were leaving somebody who was hospitalized because they just had an anvil fall on their head. <laughs> to be polite. Okay. <laughs> okay, third question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Do you really weigh that much? <laughs> <laughs> Number four, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, that's, uh, wow, that's a great question. Um, I just I just start thinking about other things and I look another way. And um, hopefully if there's somebody else in the room, I start talking to that person. And the first person is probably still talking because they just want to hear themselves <laughs> talk. It had nothing to do with me. I just happened to be there. To direct the yeah, that's interesting. You, you have no responsibility to listen. Oh, no, no, that's, no, that's, because that's a good the person will be talking. It's like the vacuum cleaner is on. Okay, just go, to me. Okay, go over there. In the old days when we could sit at a dinner party next to someone we didn't know, how do you strike up a real conversation with that person? Okay, so I don't know the person. I don't know anything about them, okay? Right, uh, right. So, uh, well, what do you think we should talk about? <laughs> oh, that's what? good. Well, I don't know. You, 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 you're with the fork, and maybe we can build on that. <laughs> I just think you acknowledge okay. the situation and then go, all right, you don't know me, I don't know you. Nice shirt. Does that that does that spur on <laughs> any response? <for> you? <laughs> okay, next to last question. What gives you confidence? My family. My wife and my children. Okay. I don't have a funny answer to that other than No, you don't need one. Uh, that's the audience I play to all the time. Last question. What book changed your life? Wow, it's a wonderful question. I don't know why, but as a young boy, when I read To Kill a Mockingbird, it opened up a world and a, a, and a system of values and Atticus Finch and all of that that uh, to this very day has stayed with me. And it's a kind of book that I'll read, oh, every five years or so. So maybe it was that. That's great. Alan, I had such a good time with you as I knew I would. Oh, Alan, it's always a pleasure. I hope to see you and Arlene in person before too long. And I love talking to you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Alan Zweibel's new memoir is called Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. As you can guess from our conversation, it's full of wonderful stories about Wonderfully funny people from Borscht Belt comics to stars like Billy Crystal, Gilda Radner, Gary Shandling, and Larry David. Alan's been nominated for eight Emmys, and he's won three. You can check out his busy schedule at alanswybell.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. 
Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with writer and psychologist Maria Konnikova. From knowing nothing about poker, she went on to win over $300,000 on the professional poker circuit in just five years. And in the process, she learned a lot about life. I actually think that poker has made me much better at relationships because you start learning to really pay attention to people, to what they're telling you but also what they're not telling you, but what their bodies are telling you. You know, are they comfortable? Are they not comfortable? Are they stressed? Are they excited? You start really learning to read the nuances of other human beings because in poker, you make more money if you do it accurately. But in real life, I think it makes you a better friend, a better listener, a better conversationalist, someone who's actually more attentive. And now it's not a money advantage, it's an emotional advantage that you're actually able to be more empathetic. You're actually able to see things from other people's point of view in a much better way. Life Lessons from Poker. Maria Konnikova, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.